Welcome to What Happened Next, a podcast about newish books. My name is Nathan Whitlock, and I'm a writer. On this podcast, I speak to other writers about what happens when their new book is no longer new, and it's time to write another one. Before I introduce my guest, I wanted to let you know that I have a book that is not just newish, it's actually brand new. It's a novel called Lump, and it's published by the Rare Machines imprint at Dundurn Press. It's my third novel. I've read it, and it's good. If you'd rather not take my word for it, the Toronto Star has called Lump one of the must-read, hands-down best books of 2023 so far. You can find out more about Lump at nathanwhitlock.ca. My guest on this episode is Carly Baker. Carly's debut story collection, Bad Endings, published by Anvil Press in 2017, won the City of Vancouver Book Award and was also a finalist for the Rogers Writers Trust Fiction Prize and the Emerging Indigenous Voices Award for Fiction. Forward Magazine said about Bad Endings, Baker is a skillful, sensitive writer with an uncanny gift for subtle dark humor and the ability to assume the viewpoint of her characters. There is no judgment or condemnation in these stories, but a tender, deep savoring of the quirks that make us human. Carly and I talk about how those stories came out of some very bad life experiences, about how winning a major award was both a shock and the occasion for some private head swelling, about the experience so far of moving from being published by a small independent press to signing a two-book deal with McClellan and Stewart, and about how she keeps forgetting the very lessons she emphasizes when she's teaching creative writing. really want to start by asking you about your bunny. Yeah, sure. I, I could talk for hours about Oliver. He, <laughs> uh, we, I had a bunny. I, I've had several bunnies, actually. They're my pet of choice. I like, I like their quietness. And uh, I do like the fact that you kind of have to earn their love. They're not sort of as, as forthcoming as dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess that's probably a situation with cats as well, but they also aren't as potentially violent as cats can be sometimes. So right. um, I like, and I just, I really feel, I like their sensitivity and their vulnerability and, and they're much smarter, or at least I can say, I mean, I don't know how smart they are, but, but they have a lot more personality than people realize, I think. So and can I ask what kind of rabbit it is? He he's he's a gray bunny, and okay. uh, he was rescued. Uh, the, we adopted him from a rescue, so they're not entirely sure. Uh, but uh, I see. you know, ears up, and uh, he's yeah, just basically. I could probably figure it out, but even at the rescue, they were a little unsure. So he's a cute, fluffy gray guy. I love the idea of a rescue bunny because it it suggests like this was living on the streets by its own wits, like survival skills, just fighting off other rabbits for, you know, stray pieces of kale or something. Yeah, he's tough. He's he's total badass. Oliver is uh, what we call him, but his name was actually Cameron or something like that. I can't remember, but his name was the street that they found him on. That's- oh, wow. So he was literally found on the street, like just yeah. abandoned. Yeah, there's a big, uh, some major issues with that in Vancouver. Well, speaking of, you know, badass creatures that have lived a life, but then become celebrated and loved and uh, somewhat domesticated. 
I want to ask you about your first book, your first collection of short stories. I'm 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 trying to do a segue here, and I know it's like that's a very uh, <laughs> like that's a great segue. Thank you. <laughs> it came out it came out in 2017, and I wonder what were you doing before that? I definitely am one of those people that I was. It seems a bit odd, although. Arming, I guess when someone says I was writing at eight years old, because I mean, obviously we weren't writing anything of merit at eight years old, but right. uh, uh, it was a, a long, many years of me writing a lot of stuff, putting a lot of stuff down and imagining things. And generally I would get, if I was frustrated, when I was an undergrad, I went into theater because I somehow thought that theater would be a more, uh, like a, a better bet for fame and fortune or something like that. <laughs> sure. Right? Yeah. Yeah. All and, those famous, uh, I, rich theater people that. Yeah, exactly. So much money yeah. circulating in the theater community. Yeah. So, but, uh, but I, I decided, okay, well, maybe I want to be a theater director. And uh, throughout the, my entire time there, I immediately as an undergrad, you're faced with all of the stresses and, and things about academe that is frustrating. And the first thing that I started to do was write a musical uh, about undergrad life and it never it i'm sure it sucked it, it never went anywhere but uh I, it was never was, performed there it never had no. a performance no maybe oh, no. maybe maybe i'll re revive it's going to be revived it That's needs right, to come yeah. back <laughs> yeah but uh but that was how i i dealt with things and i love uh dark humor and satire and that was a way that i sort of dealt with my anxieties about things and even throughout the four years that i was at uvic is where i did my undergrad people were saying you're not in the nicest possible way you know you're not really one of us you're you're a writer you should be writing but at uvic all of the the theater department and the visual arts department and the writing department are all in this sort of quad and i remember looking across the quad at the writing kids and they were so much cooler and <laughs> outside little did I know we're all we were actually all equally nerdy but the yeah. theaters are different they're a different breed you know we would be out front shouting loudly about things and and the writers would be smoking in the in the in front of the quad just quietly and but Probably I rolling, was rolling their eyes with, with judgment yeah, and, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's what we do we perform in in the theater but but uh, that's it I was sort of sitting back and watching people and doing all that stuff that stuff that writers do and uh it was years later uh after just working a gazillion jobs and uh where I was actually in kind of uh like sounds more dramatic to say this way but it was kind of like a, my back up against the wall what am I going to do with my life situation I had uh, gone through taken myself through uh, recovery from uh, drug addiction and I was also in a marriage that was uh, terminal and I was sort of simultaneously was going to end up with with less than what I was accustomed to having being someone's wife I don't want to say mm -hmm. nothing but it was a little touch and go for a while there and uh that but also a bit freed from uh the realities of a problematic relationship mm -hmm. on both sides problematic on both sides so in that moment I sort of thought well what would you be doing if you could be doing anything and writing came back immediately so I took a course at Douglas College, which is in New Westminster. I lived there at the time, and I basically chose the school that had to be as close. It was within walking distance, like a no excuses. No, I don't want to take the bus today or anything like that. And just trundled down there and started doing classes there. And it was uh, it 
was exactly, I guess, when you sort of know that you found the right thing. I think before that I had maybe gone through several career paths in my youth, hoping that I maybe I'll be gifted at this. And then when you're not, because that's a bit of a myth, I think, then just sort of losing interest. And that's embarrassing to admit, but that is what happened with theater and many other things. Oh, maybe. And with writing, it was like, oh, I'm not actually very good at this. Of course, everyone right off the bat is, and I wanted to get better. I was really excited, like, yes, okay, I want to learn this. And I want to, being told that you have to learn the rules so that you can break them later, I, that, I was excited by that and thought, mm -hmm. okay, good, let's learn those rules so that we can break them. And I had such a great group of uh, Calvin Wharton, Elizabeth Baczynski, uh, such a great group of profs there and a really nice group of students. I was quite a bit older than your average student at a community college and so friendly. And so as soon as they realized I wasn't going to try to throw my weight around as a mature student or mature students can be such jerks, mm -hmm. but I, that I felt that I was sort of starting at the same as everywhere else. And so that was sort of when I started, pulled out a couple stories that I had been chipping away at and started writing at Douglas College. And so, you know, some addiction issues, a, yeah. a, a bad relationship, a bad marriage, and also being surrounded by theater students. Which of those things were you most relieved to leave behind when you found this new world? I'm just kidding. You don't have to answer that. <laughs> it's kind of all equally. Yeah. The, okay. Yeah. Yeah. No, but, but the relationship, because when two people are unhappy, it's so, it's so soul crushing for both. I think that that was the, the addiction was, uh, that was a bad time. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, but that was, became something, uh, a privileged situation for me that it was, um, I have no, I had no interest in returning to that. I'm not, it's not that people are interested in it, but that the addiction itself was, uh, once it was kicked, there was no, uh, backsliding was something that I didn't have to worry about. Other folks do worry about, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, the nature of the, the drug was just something that I didn't ever want to experience that feeling ever again, but the relationship was definitely, I mean, that, that changed everything for me. I had, uh, uh, I had made the choice to put aside who I was. And uh, it was like a, like a midlife crisis that came along a little ahead of midlife where then all of a sudden I was like, oh, who, this, who am I? And uh, so writing is a very, writing isn't, I don't, I don't personally think that writing is therapy. I think writing is therapeutic, but uh, that it was a great, a lucky life choice to make right around the time when I needed to do some of that work. Right. And not to suggest that the stories in that collection are, are you know, one-to-one -one autobiographical, but you have talked about the fact that so many of those stories revolve around bad relationships, the ends of relationships. So clearly this was, this was very much on your mind and just, you know, people making bad choices in general. Did you see that as you were writing it or was it later like going, oh, that's that's what I've I've been thinking about. That's what my brain has been doing for the past few years. Yeah, there 
That's a good question. There's a lot of me in that book and I was aware of it for sure. I would definitely, I was, I think this is common with writers and I bet it's common with filmmakers as well, is that something about the way that we are, we find ourselves in positions and think, man, this sucks, but this would sure make for a great story. And <laughs> I do that like all the time. And, uh, and what, like the first story in Bed Innings was, is about this character that's giving out the, those Metro newspapers back when those were the things at the that thing at the sky trains. Mm -hmm. And I did that. I actually did that that was part of the the mea culpa because I had made there been some bad behavior in the marriage and also me just needing to get a job in a big hurry after kind of being um uh a stay-at-home wife not even a mom I just stayed at home all the time so right. um I had to get out there quickly and while I was doing that it was god I was so miserable you're cold and and tired and it's just so I'm I'm also fairly uh, anxious about crowds and that's just like crowd people everywhere so it was terrible but I also thought like well this is a good things that I was learning at Douglas, like that it's good for your character to have business, good for your character to be doing something rather than just ruminating. And I thought, well, this is great. This is good business. So I started to put the pieces together of what I was learning um, and then apply it to what was going on. But a lot of the time I would just start my stories by thinking, well, what do I want to write about now? And I would just sort of go through my Rolodex of um, uh, life experience and choose one of the interesting things about that, though, is that when you're writing, there's some there's sometimes a lot of things that that I didn't see. So I was writing about something that happened oh, in my life. But when it got to workshopping, uh, like a good and I just mean by good, I mean, like a generative workshop group can point things out to you that that's where sort of the I didn't know what I was doing sometimes because people would uh, point things out that I'd be like, oh, yeah, that's totally what what I was thinking and uh, and it really I'm just going to cut to the chase I took myself so seriously during those years like I was so <laughs> woe with me and that there was I actually realized that there were so many scenes that people thought were hilarious that uh, like yeah I picked <laughs> up on fast enough to be like ah, yes <laughs> so <laughs> funny what a schlub this character is hey but that that yeah. th that was something that uh it's okay to write in the throes of, you know, oh my gosh, this is so terrible. But that sometimes you're 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 funnier than you think you are. You're there's a um, an ability to be darkly humorous there that was something that I started to feel proud of as I got rolling with it. Without engineering that, without orchestrating that situation, you were able to kind of almost get these third party perspectives on things that you had done or situations you'd been in and and yeah I'd have to quickly convert to like yeah that didn't that character make that terrible mistake whereas you're getting yeah. actual you know free therapy from these people yeah it that was uh that happened a lot of the time and I preferred fiction or auto fiction I guess was the term that uh, I, I never know if that was exactly the right term it was just someone said that to me oh you write auto fiction so then I started using it but I do think that there was maybe a style an auto fiction style that was is probably not what I I didn't probably know what that style was um I see it as being very big big city New York urban and not necessarily my kind of urban but uh I didn't really like, uh, or I, I had more trouble writing nonfiction. Some of those stories, and even there's a, a story in my next collection that actually is nonfiction. Um, but I, when it came to workshop, I felt that 
yes, there was a, a chance. I was always, it was always the nonfiction workshops where like my legs were shaking under the table and I was really felt really vulnerable. And with fiction, there was at least that comfortable veil of um, some of this is me and Mm -hmm. other parts isn't and the another interesting thing with the nonfiction though is particularly I'd find when you're writing about um having been an addict is that there's also a worry that some people well-meaning will get on a real like sort of bootstraps like congratulations <laughs> on like what a story of of um uh, like I'm, I, I can't even think of the word right now, but I'm so, so how brave of you to, how brave of you to tell this story. And I didn't find that super helpful either. It's, it's not back to therapy again, you know, your therapist tells you that and you say, ah, oh, thanks. Okay. Mm. It's good to know, but you don't really need that from your readers. Right. So with fiction, it, it was allowed me to move things around to protect myself. But also it was for in the early days, I was totally dependent on and so grateful for my people who read my stories and had something to say, because I was sort of learning, I was writing as I was learning. So those were the the conversations with readers with first readers was that was where I learned a lot. When the book came out, uh what were you kind of expecting? Did you have this feeling of like, well, obviously I'm going to be the next pick your can lit star? Or were you like, maybe 10 people? I hope my friends like it. I hope this, you know, one professor that I had really likes it. Because it did go on to like get on a lot of short lists. It won awards. It won the City of Vancouver Book Award. Throughout all that, were you able to stay grounded or did you get into that mindset of like, no, I'm the shit because my head would have swollen a little. I will freely admit. Yeah, I definitely got into that. I'm the shit. Sometimes you keep that to your damn self because <laughs> uh, it doesn't get you very far in Canlet to tell anyone that yeah. like self self de uh, deprecating humor is sort of what we all do in Canlet all the time. And uh, but yeah, sure. Sometimes you don't do I, it in the accepted acceptance speech. In other words, yeah, you yeah. I just want everyone to know that I saw this coming from a mile away. <laughs> and uh, so yeah, but it was um, so it was it was a blend. It was a stew of all of those things because there were moments. Um, Often after a couple of glasses of wine, you know, in a in a private conversation with someone, I'd be like, I think I'm really good. But uh, and, and even it got worse than that. There were moments where I was like, why? I, why haven't I been invited to be on this panel? I'm obviously the next short story writing sensation. And only a year or six months later to be like, oh, thank goodness I didn't tweet that or right. whatever. But um, but it also was a big surprise. Like, of, of course, I, I would be lying. I used to say anyone would be lying, but that's not really fair because. I don't know what I don't know what everyone thinks, but I would be lying to say that when the when it, the book was published and Amble Press published it and they were so great to work with that I was sort of I was aware that it was a it's a local uh, independent press, small press, Vancouver. And so that I was aware that, well, then it might just be read locally. Um, but sure, I hoped that something big was going to happen, but it definitely took off in a way that I had no I had no idea like when I the city of Vancouver book award and this is going to sound precious but it's the truth I didn't have a speech ready because I didn't think for a second that I would win that I was of the mindset that getting on shortlist is a huge benefit to your career and that that's that anything beyond that was like you know winning the lottery or whatever so fortunately the 
speech time was like a, a tight 60 minutes. So I just thought, well, okay, get up and thank folks and then get down, get off of there. I had worn these stupid heels that I had like tottered up on the stage that <laughs> was just and thought, mm. but uh, yeah, I didn't expect that. But then, yeah, somebody messaged and was like, Carly Baker is trending on the local Twitter. And I was like, oh, you're a big deal. All right, I have a big deal now. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it did, whether you were able to temper that you know, those instincts or not, it did elevate you to a certain position that you've, that you've held ever since and that you're building upon. And I will say that looking through your, your list of accomplishments, looking through the list of awards, there is one that I am genuinely envious of that I need to ask you about. And that is that you had the chance to go to the Burton house in 2019. And not only, and just for anyone's listening, the Burton House is this writing retreat. Uh, I believe it's in Yellowknife. Is that correct? Dawson City. Yukon. Dawson City. Yes. Yeah. And you did it in a way that I'm triply envious. I've always wanted to go. You did it in a way that I'm triply envious of because you went, I believe, in the winter. You didn't do the summer months. You went, you went to Dawson City in the winter for whatever it was, three or four months to write. Can you tell me I'm wrong to be envious? Please tell me it was a horrible time. It is challenging to be there in the winter, but it would have been more of a party in the summer, I guess, because of the 24 hour um, light that they mm -hmm. have for a couple of months. But uh, yeah, it was what I what I will tell you is that I spent most of my time there in input mode like I I didn't do a lot of writing while I was there. I had just graduated. And, uh, and yeah, as far as being there in the winter too, I have to say that took some convincing. They told me flat out that they don't generally let the Vancouverites, like that the, the coastals <laughs> go up there in the winter because they were the just wimps. like, they don't let the wimps you, go up there. Yeah. <laughs> are you sure you're ready for this? Yeah. And, and uh, I had lived, um, it's Northern by our standards. I'd lived in Cassiar, which is a, a very, just, I guess, two hours south of Watson Lake. It, so just on the uh, BC Yukon border for a couple of years when I was a kid. So I was used to, for, uh, I was, you're not used to, only takes a year in Vancouver before you're soft as hell. But the, mm -hmm. um, I had experienced 40 below and I'd experienced uh, darkness. I had maybe, maybe in, a, in the best case scenario, I would have waited a year because I was so, so tired when I left my um, MFA program. I was really, really worn out. And uh, so it, it's, I just told myself while I was there, I actually at one point like ran the internet down. Internet's really expensive up there. And so James at the Writers Trust had to call me and was like, Carly, yeah, you've used all your internet, like not just for the month, but like for your entire three months. And uh, so in, unless it's research and uh, I was watching these YouTube videos just nonstop, nonstop of uh, urban exploration, these urban explorers that would go through, primarily it was the, the dead malls that I liked the best. So I was just watching them like crazy. And so I said, yeah, James, I'll, I'll write something about that someday. <laughs> so I said, all right, okay, okay. And they like hooked me back up again. And, and but it was uh, that something that I regret, but also I forgive myself for because I, it was just not... It wasn't that it was happened to be a, a loading phase for me rather mm -hmm. than a productive phase. And you have no idea. I mean, there may be a urban mall, dead mall exploration novel years out that you will then go like, aha, it was research. And you can write that back to James and say, 
You see, thank you yeah. for, you know, thank you for yeah. hooking me up. <laughs> One of the other things that kind of speaks to your, the status that, that came from um, bad endings and all the success it had was you got a shout out by Patton Oswald, by, by the comedian Patton Oswald. That was so cool. And I, I have to come clean and say that Patton Oswalt does a, a shout out for most, if not all, of the stories that are in the Hingston and Olson right. short story event calendar, which is where that I I loved it though, because that story had just been, I had like just Granta had just sent me uh uh no, no, we don't want to publish this. And I was so bitter and and uh was sitting there fuming. And Michael Hingston, who I hadn't met at that point, got in touch and said, Hey, do you have something that you can send us? And uh, so I fired it off immediately and uh was so thrilled that it got to be a part of that. So so I can pretend, but I I, I won't because it's also easily traceable that Patton Oswald just happened to find my story and think that I was amazing. But but he was so I mean, it's amazing that he does that, first of mm -hmm. all. That's tremendously exciting. I mean, it, it's, I certainly can't say that when I was, I had to eventually, I, I, I'm not on Twitter, or there's an account that actually uh, someone else handles for me, but uh, I can't handle Twitter anymore because the the dopamine, um, the highs and lows were just too much for me. Mm -hmm. But um but that was a huge and it actually came at such it came at such a beautiful time i was home for christmas of course the short story advent calendar and mine was number 17 day 17 and uh someone uh, someone else i don't remember and it's just as well that i don't get into it but uh someone had done a review of it for their their blog it was a sort of a someone who i'm not even really sure what this person's background was but let's just say that it was a bit of a bit of a I'm very disappointed I expected better from this author kind of and uh, it wow. had and you know when we talked about getting full of yourself um I had had a lot of really complimentary like the response to the book was very complimentary and so I felt a bit guilty to be so like annoyed with this and 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 so because of course some people aren't going to like your damn book like that's that's of course but i had i'd been i'd totally done the thing that some writers do that other writers did and i did not understand until i had my book where you post a little something about it on your facebook and you close off your facebook so that it's not available so that writers can be this beautiful thing that writers do <laughs> where they all jump to that's garbage and yeah. I, this person you know and i had seen so many other writers do this and thought oh that's not very classy and then it happens to you and that's the first thing you do is go to your community and say ah i'm i'm bleeding help help <laughs> and just so as that was playing out like literally the same night i was scrolling twitter endlessly as you do and and i saw that and was just like Sean, my partner, Sean was sitting next to me and he was talking and I just held the phone in his face and he was like, what, what, what? And was, holy, look at that. And responded when I said, thank you very much. He responded and what a, that is so generous of him to do that. And it, it was, ah, I was so happy. <laughs> those moments, those moments in general, when you have you're coming from like, again, a, a moment of rejection from one place, someone saying something shitty, and then this, you know, almost like uh, a pulling rank moment comes where it's like, 
these people said no, but somebody 20 steps above you in terms of cultural relevance or importance, whatever, uh, popularity just said yes. Do you have your moment of like, I I hope they see this. I should yeah, like ta- I, I should tag Brandon. Yeah, no, I and and like privately, obviously, it's yeah. you don't hack someone who's who's giving there, but yeah, no, I fully gloated and and uh, was sort of yes, all right, ha ha, and I mean that's part. Of it. It's it feels like we have to be. I often use like the nastiest terms for it when I'm thinking about myself. Like I I think of it, I don't think of it as confident. I think of it as arrogant, or I. I tend to to I'm still trying to work that out where you don't always have to use the the nastiest terminology but we do have to be in a certain I shouldn't say we again but I have to be in a certain headset in order to be able to be creative and that that there's some like really cool parts about that that headset there's some um uh, some romantic you know feeling really big and expansive and like you're seeing connections and things but there's also some like petty, uh, self-absorbed, crappy things about that headset that I also feel are part of my, whether I like it or not, a part of my process and, mm-hmm. and that self-protective to be if, if, uh, and that makes it hard if your book does well too, to think about what's going to happen if people don't like your next book. That was a, a bit of a, um, with zero expectations for, or I mean, all kinds of hopes, but zero expectations for bad endings, then uh, thinking about what happens next. And people talk about the sophomore slump and stuff like that. That was pretty um, intimidating after that has been. You, you immediately start worrying that you've peaked and that you've, yeah. you've done it. And then everything else is going to be like, well, it's no bad endings. It's okay. Yeah. One book, book one, that's it. You're done. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. With that status that you've that you acquired because of the book and and legitimately so, rightfully so, I wonder if there's a particular there's something I spoke to um, someone else on this podcast, another writer on this podcast about um, Alicia Elliott, about the particular reality when indigenous writers gain a certain amount of prominence, and they get sometimes put on a pedestal. And then they get expected to be a kind of spokesperson or representative uh, for all Indigenous issues. Did you find that starting to happen? Is that something you started to struggle with as well? Yeah. And uh, boy, Alicia sure did. Holy. And uh, that I I, um, I don't compare the or the success that I had with Alicia's success, because I mean, her book really, really took off and really touched a lot of people and did a lot of important work. And also... Uh, was nonfiction. So it, uh, whereas I kind of dance around things in my fiction, uh, sometimes Alicia really like took those issues by the throat and, and shook them. And it was so amazing. So, but, but I still had this book that did better than expected. And yeah, absolutely. Uh, there was a lot and it is, it's tough to, to navigate to, um, I'm, a Métis person and I'm, I'm white coded. So I move through the world as a white person. Um, I can escape from any situation based on my skin color. So, uh, and then there, I guess there is a different side of that. Some people would agree with me. Some wouldn't that there is a lot of responsibility then, and to maybe step up and take, take some of these jobs so that folks who deal with, uh, 
racism based on the color of their skin can take a break if they want. I don't right. know a lot of folks who, who take a break, take breaks, but, uh, so that was something that was on my mind where, uh, it was good for me to speak up and to take action, to lead when it was appropriate, but that also, uh, it, there was stepping away saying no uh and better than saying no if someone got in touch with me to ask me to speak about something that i mean it's and it happens with sensitivity readers and stuff you'd have someone contact you that was like i'm writing a blackfoot character and you're like well i'm not blackfoot so and and mm -hmm. to be frank if it was someone that i didn't know i wasn't even really inclined to send them to someone else because i didn't know what kind of situation i was uh i could be putting that person in but if someone got in touch and said, you know, I, I, we'd love to interview you to uh, talk about uh, the situation for Inuk writers, then you would have, I would have a, like lists of people. That was a great thing about being at school, being uh, at UBC was that I was involved with the writing department, but also with Indigenous Studies Department. So I did get to know some folks and I always made sure to have, and even sometimes it was just like, we'd love you to come and do a reading that I just thought, well, I don't need to take up that space and someone else can and should do that. So it, it's, um, you have to balance it, or I have to balance it that way. And certainly, I mean, I think probably even in this conversation, I, I am so tempted to say things generally, we, the we, the we. And right. over the years, I have really sort of more focused on the, the I, and this is how I feel and I think about it, um, or share someone else's knowledge and make sure that, you know, people know that, this isn't this isn't your wisdom that you're sharing uh, to sort of gather that up and and share that when I can. But it was very important for me. I definitely got particularly on Twitter, got carried away with uh, my role. And the, I mean, part of this is, too, it, it, it pumps your tires for people to be like, thank you so much. It's so you're really saying these important things. And that the again, the, that endless dopamine, you're like, yes, I did something important today. I did something good um, done some good work. And so I, I got carried away with that at times as well, but it's a, oof, yeah, it's a, it's a tough one and it continues. You start picturing your angry tweets on like a plaque somewhere and say, this is where Carly Baker wrote these tweets and sent them off that, you know, really told them, told those yeah. people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And no one was ever racist again. That's right. Yeah. I mean, and that quickly comes back is that you start to realize that for all the work that you you're doing you're it doesn't feel it often feels like there's no advancement happening there there has been some in in my opinion i wouldn't argue with someone who felt differently but there has been some advancement and change but the number of times that you would get asked a, a question including that something that you had just spoken about um and that someone would you'd i'd finish speaking about um say writing indigenous characters that was a very hot topic remains a hot topic and so that i would try to tell stories from my experience about how i i write generally from my experience and that i wouldn't uh, um, choose a character with uh, with a cherokee background uh I, well i just wouldn't um but that if someone were to do something like that there's a tremendous amount of community acceptance and involvement that would have to go into that and i would literally step off the stage and someone would come up to me and be like i've got a question for you and ask me exactly the same question and uh 
is it Alexander Chi? Is that Alexander Chi? I think I'm, I'm doing the thing where I might, might may or may not remember. So I'll, I'll say that <laughs> and then I'll look it up afterwards. I believe it was Alexander Chi that wrote a, a, I think it was in Vulture, as a matter of fact, about how he's not lecturing about appropriation anymore because he generally feels that most people ask simply because they're there they ask you about appropriation because they're waiting for you to give them permission right they just want permission and people will ask you all kinds of of fancy questions to make it sound like they're very interested and they want to learn more and it's your job to educate them but that he generally feels that people are mostly asking because they want permission and i had several people approach me and uh and with what i read as can you give me permission to to write this indigenous character or something and that that's a very uncomfortable position to be in and not at all fair to to put me in so I no, just it's, had... it's like they're looking for like a stamp of approval so that they can always point to that. It's like, no, it's been it's been endorsed. It's been approved. I've put it through the community. Yeah. One, Carly Baker one said person yes. said yes. Yes. Yeah. So that, yeah. that counts for everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so that it got frustrating from that end, too. But you do say that you have a sense that it's a little better from my perspective as a middle aged straight white guy. You know, history's great as villain. It does feel like the at least the floor has come up a little bit, even if the ceiling could stand to go a little higher. The floor has come up. Yeah, I do. I do have that sense. And uh, and and I say that with the understanding that there are some folks who deal with so much crap daily that it may not feel like that to them. Mm -hmm. um, and but I do. I mean, I'm I agree with you in that uh, the awareness is there and uh and and there's always there there's sort of the push a little bit and then learn a little bit and push a little bit and 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 that many people and it, it's really that it would be very it would be a fair assessment for folks to worry that to stop pushing would just mean a, a backslide into the way things mm -hmm. were and I don't know, like I do have to maintain a certain amount personally of optimism uh, in order to keep existing. So um, like, I just can't uh, allow myself to be, uh, um, I have to be optimistic about things. So, and, and that, you know, if someone wants to argue me, uh, argue with me about that, that's fine. Uh, but I was, I mean, I've been at events where, uh, well, something like land acknowledgements, which is still a very hot topic, and and many people are rightly saying that like acknowledging the land. There was a there was it was on Baroness von Sketch for goodness sakes, where there was the uh the, you know the the person gets up and does the land acknowledgement, and then someone stands up and and says, okay, well we're leaving then, you know, this sort of not <laughs> yeah, to yeah. land back. And uh, yep, that's a good uh, that's a good point, and that it's an obvious. Uh, signal that there's still work to do uh, but I have also been at events where there was not perhaps mistake I mean public speaking is terrifying uh, where there was not a land acknowledgement done and the feeling in the audience was was palpable and and by people of various backgrounds um, oh, and I was actually at an event where a, a writer came up um, and gave the land acknowledgement later in 
that didn't give didn't give the land acknowledgement, but acknowledged the land that we were on. Just basically said, "Hey, this is the land that we're on." And uh, later, because it had been omitted earlier on, and uh, I I thought, okay, that's it, it, it. You don't we don't we don't all sit back and pat ourselves on the back at that point and think, okay, good, we're done. But mm-hmm. that yeah, it is it it in those moments I feel uh, like that work, which was really challenging has had some effect speaking of moving forward mm-hmm. you recently signed a two book deal with uh, mcclellan and stewart for two books a, a collection of short stories and a novel um i have two questions about that both potentially uncomfortable mm. the first question is what's the feeling what's the difference in terms of moving from a small press like like Anvil, moving to a large multinational like McClellan and Stewart. I'm sure, you know, having that operation kind of draw you in is a great feeling as a writer to feel so supported by a team. But were there any sort of uncomfortable moments of like, I'm a cool rebel, you know, indie, you know, writer that that got my start with this thing, with these people, with this team. And now I'm going to this larger place. Yeah, it was in in so many ways i can think of so many different ways that it it was uncomfortable and uh the fact you know that that brian kaufman and karen green when i signed my first contract with ample i was i i did it without i mean i didn't even read it because <laughs> i i i knew them well if i had read it would i have even understood what i was reading and but uh that I, I'd known them for years. I trusted them, and uh, we we'd hung out together. You know, I'd I'd spent time on the scene with them. I was introduced to Brian by one of my writing profs, by Calvin Wharton, and and on the night that Brian said, "Hey, you know, send me your manuscript" or something like that, and I had totally thought that that was just something polite that people said to writers, and it was Wade Compton, another writer, was was like. Did you catch that? And did that register in you? Because you were just asked to send. And I said, oh, no, I assume that that when he said, yeah, no, I had the same. And so that, you know, explain that to mm-hmm. me that don't do that now go and do that, Carly. Um, and that the yeah, it it was. And I, I think from another perspective, too, I think that maybe part of my my superpower has been. Being like small working up I think that that I mean I my impression is that Camlet loves a diamond in the rough or whatever like a, a surprise I just the the people were there was so much like excitement about well we never saw you coming Carly and and uh, <laughs> that, that I think part of that helps your career because people are excited there's a certain period I prefer to be the underdog I prefer to feel scrappy and like I have something to prove and I still feel that way, but it's, it's, I can't be rolling around saying, you know, now I'm signed with McClellan Stewart. I can't certainly, I'm going to look pretty dumb if I'm going around saying yeah, I'm a scrappy independent or whatever, because I've, I'm with a big publisher now. Um, there were also some really practical things. Like I, uh, I am not very comfortable. I'm a very anxious person and I am not very comfortable at events. Um, I, I'm having a good time when we're on stage talking usually, but 
book signings and stuff like that. I mean, they must be uncomfortable for most of us, but they were massively uncomfortable for me because nobody knew who I was. So like, I remember sitting at the, at the IFOA for the writers trust people and me and all these superstars and quite understandably, there was no line at my book table. And so I was watching and, uh, you know, some of these writers had, this isn't the right term, but I call them handlers because I need a handler. They, what <laughs> they were was trained assistants. And, and I don't want to, to denigrate the work that they do, but that I would love to have a handler. I just feel like I'm tripping around, very awkward. And that I, I saw that these writers with the bigger presses had the these certain these supports that I thought I would really like that that would make me that would help with these anxious uncomfortable moments to have uh someone who is literally just sitting beside me and talking to me <laughs> or just someone to get you a water or you know, yeah. someone who can grab you a bottle of water if you need to or yeah that's really cool. That was really cool that that and and so I thought about that. And then also there was and and this might embarrass him and I don't care. There was Jared Bland who came uh, that night, came up to the table and introduced and I sort of knew I didn't know. I'm really embarrassed to say I knew Jared Bland from the Globe and Mail. I'd never met him. Um but when he said Jared Bland, I was like, oh, of course, he's here from the Global Mail because I didn't know that he was with McClellan and Stewart. And, and like I was really you're really on the outside until you're on the inside, it feels mm-hmm. like sometimes. And that was my experience and uh, uh, was then the next day sent an email and I scrolled down. I was like, oh, whoa, whoa. OK, <laughs> All right. cool. And, and I had just got my agent at that point. And so I was like, OK this is happening. Um, But so much of the, I wanted to work with Jared. I wanted to work with Jared Bland. We, he spent the time developing a a working relationship with me and a professional relationship over the years and uh, relationships. That's what it's, I now talk about that. Um, That is one, one uh, situation where I do feel comfortably talking about experiences of Indigenous people is experiences of Indigenous people in publishing, because that's something that I can, mm-hmm. not me as the publisher, but me as being published. And relationships is, that's something that's so important. And that that he did that. He, he established that relationship with me and we worked together. And so then when it was time to uh, work on the next books, uh, that was, something that I wanted. I, I was really eager for um, the extra bit of help and guidance. The small presses, it's not that they don't want to give you that extra bit of help and guidance. It's that they are literally functioning on inadequate funding and doing the best that they can. And I I, I wanted some of that. And so I, I decided to, and it, it, it wasn't, it wasn't easy, um, but I decided to access that but it was I wanted to work with Jarrett and it's been so fantastic working with him on the short story collection that's great to hear and I'm, I'm actually really glad and I and I hope there was no sense of judgment when I was asking that question but no no I uh, like I like hard questions yeah but I also know some writers who've done a similar move that they you know their first book or two they were sort of whatever discovered by a small indie press and then you know called up to the majors as it were Sometimes it's a wonderful, organic, nurturing scenario. And sometimes that original indie press is like, huh, 
Yeah, well, and I have to say it was Brian Kaufman at Anvil who got the short story collection rolling this this next one. I had spent an inordinate amount of time spinning my wheels doing nothing and feeling like I needed to be working on a novel or what was I even doing with my life. And it was Brian who got in touch like not that long ago and said, hey, can we commission you to to write a story for Subterrain, which is Anvil's uh, journal. And uh, so in my head, I thought, no. That's always my first response to anything. But I said, well, uh, let me think about it. And that that pushed me back into I started working on something. The first story that I was working on, I tossed, started working on something else. And then all of a sudden I was back again. And for for some weird reason, I had been on this like that. Just what you said earlier about, you you know, you move up from well, you're talking about publishers, but it's the same thing with short stories to novels. It's like, congratulations. Now you must write run the gauntlet, right. write the novel, because that's where we all go. But I I was lost trying to do that. And of course, no publisher is interested in you if you don't have something to show them. So it was Brian that actually got that rolling again with that phone call. And, and that I sure appreciate that because I, I get that. I get how a small press could feel like, you know, they've done this work and 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 supported you and then you leave. But uh, and, and you know what, if he feels that way, that's fine. But he's been nothing but supportive of me uh, throughout this process. Part of that is probably the reality of being in Vancouver. I don't think we can be feuding too much here in Vancouver, <laughs> but sure, it's mostly that that. Yeah, we just he's he's been really good to me. They've been really good to me at Anvil. I did say I would have another a second, potentially uncomfortable question. And that is I, now that you've said all this, it's even more potentially uncomfortable. How's the novel coming? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Um, or if oh you lost God. a lot of time watching YouTube videos of people spelunking and I watch a lot of YouTube videos. I watch <laughs> a lot of YouTube videos. I, it's actually one of these ways that I get myself to write is that I say, OK, you can watch one 20 minute YouTube video and then you have to write for a couple of hours. So it's that's my Pomodoro or whatever that you that's you yeah. take a break. And, although the breaks are when I do the writing. But uh, the yeah. So um there's I don't know I don't know how much I can say uh, about specifics because the but that there's likely going to be uh, a novel is still coming I signed a contract but that it's uh, it's there's likely going to be some changes coming on on that front I've been uh, I'm working on a couple of different things right now this is going to have nothing to do with my contract I doubt because it's a novella and people generally aren't interested in novellas but I'm I'm working on a novella and and that I've started developing several story ideas, I guess that I'll just say, and uh, that some of them are going well. That right. that's that's very vague, but uh, that yeah, I'm re I'm very lucky to have maybe gotten into a, a situation where um, a change had to be made to the plan uh, in order to keep the the writing happening, and that uh, so there's some adjustments to that but it's still happening i what i will say is that writing working on the which the novel which has been called a gazillion different things and last was called mudlarkers and is about this uh, uh canoe trip that i took that a lot of challenges with uh writing something taking that story it was a massive canoe trip there were lots of mistakes made there was some some uh dangerous stupid things that happened on the trip and that I've had tremendous difficulty turning it into fiction, um, figuring out how to handle 
what feels like a cast of thousands, just all of this stuff. And that I had been feeling very uncomfortable about, uh, it, it does feel like whether it's correct or not, it feels like all eyes are on you for your first novel. Um, I mean, that's not the case, but uh, it feels like that. And that I had really spent part of the reasons why I hadn't written anything for the last several years is because I was so intimidated by that and made all the mistakes. I mean, I teach, it's like totally a do as I say, not as I do, telling my students that, uh, you know, pare it down, keep it simple, move along with what you've got. Characters are the, are the main thing and they have to have wants and desires. And I completely got turned into this, like, I need to reinvent the genre. Um, this is going to save the world. I mean, like, and talk yeah. about indigenous writers. And uh, I, I know I'm not alone in this. As ridiculous as it sounds, it's so easy, I think, for some of us to get caught up into, well, I'll fix things with my novel. I'll, mm -hmm. I'll fix reconciliation with my novel. And you know how ridiculous it is, but it still rings around in your head and can really just, just stop things sometimes you were worried about all these other people coming in and putting you on this pedestal and making you this spokesperson and and all this time you were doing it to yourself oh totally yeah yeah totally and and there's part of that is with um uh I don't have the same I mean some people go and they do their master's programs and they come out real mad and they don't feel like it helped them or they feel that and and you know I have wasn't a perfect situation obviously but that I don't blame anyone for this but I I I went there I learned a lot um I learned a lot about representation indigenous representation in novels and a lot of that was through indigenous studies um and uh universities are so there's so much going on. There's so like great minds thinking about stuff and students and uh, there's politics everywhere. And uh, um, that I did get overwhelmed with learning about, uh, and I'm not talking about university politics, but, but I mean, just world politics or sur you're surrounded by it. People are talking with you about it all the time and national politics and community politics um, and, and indigenous communities. I mean, so the more I learned, the more, uh, intimidated I got by what I was doing and definitely questioned whether I had the right to even, even though I was telling my own story, I became infinitely aware of the damage that I could do by not telling it correctly or by like that I could make a mistake, particularly because I use so much irreverent humor, um, that I could make a mistake and that I could do damage. And that got fed by uh, Twitter and social media and it got fed by what I was learning. And so the shaking out of that is uh, like that, that's gonna take a while. I, I'll figure it out, but uh, it's it just turned everything into a, a, a just a storm inside my head. What Happened Next is produced and edited by me. The music playing under my voice is by the great Alex Lukashevsky, who is letting me use it for free. You can find more of Alex's music at alukashevsky.bandcamp.com. Thank you for listening. Please subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. There will be a new episode every Monday. Please buy more books, and not just new ones.